Please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We are working our way through Matthew's gospel and right now the Sermon on the Mount. And the Lord's Prayer is where we are in our second week on that section of Matthew 6. I'm going to read the whole prayer like Scott did last Sunday, and then we are zeroing in just on verse 10. I've titled the sermon, Your Kingdom Come, an overview of the Bible's storyline. So I want to try to flesh out what the kingdom of God is exactly. It's a term that we can often be uncomfortable trying to define and exactly pin down. I think with most of us, gospel we can pin down, justification by faith, a lot of us could explain what that is Kingdom is a little more difficult to pin down. What precisely is this? What are we saying when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? So Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray briefly together. Heavenly Father, uh, I do pray that this quick airplane flyover of the theme of the kingdom in Scripture would be helpful for us as we try to understand what this is exactly, and how it plays such an important role in holding our entire Bible together from Genesis to Revelation. So I pray for your help now, in Jesus' name, amen. The the sermon today, I don't mean to discourage you, you shouldn't discourage someone when you're starting a sermon. The sermon today is not going to be primarily heavy on application, which is what I would normally want the sermon to be. It is going to be largely trying to explain a a large concept in the Bible, and it will lead to application. It has major implications and applications in all of our lives, but it's certainly going to be heavy on information for the next number of minutes. So prepare for that. Uh, For those in the computer in the back, I have got a slide here that for the the next slide is the kingdom of God slide. And uh, I, I just want to go ahead and tell you guys right now, that um, Von Roberts wrote a book called God's Big Picture, Tracing the Storyline of the Bible. It's a brief book, but powerful given its size. This is a great synopsis of the kingdom in the Bible, and I am just heavily, I want to say borrowing, stealing from Von Roberts. So Von Roberts, thank you. Uh, I'm borrowing heavily from him. My points are essentially the chapter titles of this book, because I, I really don't know how to improve upon it. So his definition of the kingdom, which is not really original entirely to him, he's building off a bunch of other people I don't need to name right now. Uh, His definition of the kingdom is this. So if you want to boil it down, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place, under God's rule, and experiencing God's blessing. I think this is a very helpful, simple way to summarize this massive theme of Scripture. God's people in God's place, under God's rule, and experiencing God's blessing. And I'd like to move to the next slide, which I'd like to keep up here for a while. This is the Old Testament. And this will be, this will be our, uh, this will be our next uh, few points here as we begin to walk through this. If you, if you can't read that clearly, uh, I'll, I'll give you the P's here. They're all starting with P. That just makes it nice, doesn't it? So you've got the pattern of the kingdom. 
You've got the perished kingdom. You've got the promised kingdom. You've got the partial kingdom. You've got the prophesied kingdom. And that's the Old Testament. Then we'll get to the New Testament in a minute. We'll hold on. But the New Testament is the present kingdom, the proclaimed kingdom, and the perfected kingdom. And if you have those eight Ps right there, if you can get those eight Ps, you can really explain to someone the entire Bible through the theme of the kingdom in a very short period of time. Now, I'm going to take longer than a short period of time. I'm warning you. It's, all, it's already 340. We're in trouble today, ladies and gentlemen. We are in trouble. I'm in the introduction on a sermon that covers the entire Bible. We're in some serious trouble today. So um, small groups will begin around 930 p.m. tonight. Um, uh, all right, so <laughs> Old Testament here, we will start with the pattern of the kingdom, and this is Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters of your Bible. In fact, I would invite you to turn to the very end of Genesis chapter 2, and you will see in Genesis 1 and 2 that as God creates the world and creates the habitable world in the six days, and on the seventh day He rests, He creates the world very good, and Adam and Eve are present. And at the end of Genesis 1 and 2, you have the pattern of the kingdom. And I've talked about this years ago, but I want to refresh you on some of these things. Okay, the kingdom is God's people in God's place, under God's rule, experiencing God's blessing. Can we test that out on the first two chapters of the Bible? Who are God's people in Genesis 1 and 2? Adam and Eve. What is God's place? The Garden of Eden? Do they have some rules? Do they have, is God giving them some careful instructions about not eating from the tree and filling the earth and subduing it and multiplying and being fruitful? And do they experience God's blessing? Well, God explicitly said in chapter one, uh, it says that God blessed them. Verse 28, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. So God is clearly blessing them, but also the, the fundamental blessing, the most significant blessing of God is God. They are standing in the garden with God. Walking in the garden in the cool of the day, there is God. I, I would assume this is the Lord Jesus in pre-incarnate form, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, but God is present among them. And what, what's always nice to do is take the first two chapters of the Bible, the pattern of the kingdom, and then you could, if you jump down to the very last point, which is the perfected kingdom, the last two chapters of your Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, there are all kinds of book-ended parallels between the very beginning and the very ending of your Bible. As I've said many times before, these are the only chapters in the Bible where sin does not exist. The first two and the last two. That's when there's no sin. There's sin all over the middle of the Bible, but those first and last two chapters, there is no sin. Those are the only sections of Scripture where you have the tree of life. In both texts, you have costly stones, you have rivers, you have God's presence, you have no temple, you have no sin, no sickness, no death, the kingdom is present. You have God making heaven and earth, and then you have God making a new heaven and a new earth. But you have this sense that you've gone on a long journey, and yet in some sense you've returned to what Adam and Eve lost, but it is yet better even than what Adam and Eve had in the first place. So that's the kingdom of God. And let's let's move here. The pattern of the kingdom is Adam and Eve in Eden under God's rule being blessed by God's presence. Well, number two, point number two is the perished kingdom. If you want to jot down, this is really Genesis chapters 3 to 11. Genesis chapters 3 to 11, the perished kingdom. It's the downward spiral of human depravity. If you ever want to be depressed, (laughs) read Genesis 3 through 11. Because my goodness, there are some terrible things. The first child born becomes the first murderer, killing his own brother. And it gets 
if you can imagine, worse from there. And you just have the downward spiral of human depravity down to the Tower of Babel. And it looks hopeless and we look helpless apart from God. So what is the perished kingdom? Adam and Eve sin. And at least in that moment, they are no longer God's people. And by the way, everyone who's born to this day is not born part of God's people. We are born dead in sin. We are born outside of God's people. So Adam and Eve were not God's people in that moment when they sinned. They were kicked out of God's place, east of Eden, with the flaming sword of the cherubim guarding the way back to the garden. No one can enter unless you will die to go back to the tree of life. Had they disobeyed God's rule? They had disobeyed God's rule, and now, instead of blessing, they had experienced God's curse. God's kingdom is no longer on earth as in heaven. Do you see? There's now been a separation. It's as though heaven and earth had this split and God's space was now taken away from our space in that direct sense. And there was this division now and uh, there was this there was this uh, curse of sin. But look at Genesis 3.15. It's the John 3.16 of your Old Testament. The first time the gospel is ever mentioned in all the Bible. What a wonderful verse. Genesis 3.15. The Lord said to the serpent, verse 15, I will put enmity between you. That's Satan, the serpent. And the woman, Eve, and between your offspring, those who act like the devil, and her offspring, that would be believers, he, the seed of Eve, the child of Eve, he shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. So here is the promise. The, the kingdom has been shattered. The kingdom has perished. It has been wrecked. We're no longer God's people, no longer in God's place, no longer obedient to his rule. We are now under judgment and a curse, but God doesn't leave us there. This is the God that we worship. He doesn't leave us there. God had every right to say, end of the story. Death is what happens the day you eat of the fruit. You ate of the fruit, you are going to die spiritually and physically, and you're going to be cast into the lake of fire. That's the end of the human race. God had every right to end the story in Genesis 3, but instead he promises a serpent-crushing Savior who is going to, in some mysterious way, reverse the effects of the fall. We're told in 1 John, Jesus came, he appeared to destroy the works of the devil. He came to crush the serpent's head. Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God is not going to leave us being ruled by Satan. He is going to come send this serpent crusher who is going to undo the effects of the fall. And in some way, unclear at this point, he's going to restore the kingdom back to its proper place. As you go through Genesis 3 to 11, it's depressing. Turn to Genesis 12, a major moment of encouragement in Genesis chapter 12. This is still the promised kingdom. Look at Genesis 12, and let's just look at the first three verses. God picks, now now hear this, Abraham was not, I know he was Abram at the time, Abram was not doing his devotions that morning when God showed up and said, hey, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You know what Abram was doing? He was living in Ur, which is like old school Babylon. He was living in Babylon, and Ur of the Chaldeans, Ur of the Babylonians, and he was worshiping false gods, probably the moon god, which is what they worshiped in Ur at the time. He was probably worshiping the moon. That's Abraham. The great God. Joshua tells us our fathers worshipped other gods, referring to Abraham and his ancestors. They were pagan idolaters. Listen, if you are discouraged by the sin in your life, God can take a moon-worshipping pagan like Abram and turn him in to the father of God's people. God can turn your life around if you will simply turn and trust in his saving grace in this very moment. So God takes Abram and he makes this amazing promise, 12.1. 
Now the Lord said to Abram, go. Are we hearing God's rule coming back into the picture, his commands? Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Do we, are we hearing about a land? Is that a place for the kingdom to be? A place to the land that I will show you? I will make of you a great nation. Does that include a lot of people? And a place? And I will bless you and, you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you hear that the kingdom is going to be rebuilt through Abraham's offspring? A people is going to be Israel, right? God's people. The place is going to be the promised land. Is God going to give them some rules? He's going to give them the law of Sinai, the law of Moses. He's going to give them his commands. And is God holding out a promise of blessing for those who bless Abraham and his offspring instead of the curse of the fall? God is going to rebuild the kingdom through the family of Abraham. What Adam lost, Abraham's family is going to restore. But the details are not totally clear just yet. Turn to Genesis 49. This is still in the promised kingdom. Genesis 49, the very end of Genesis. Jacob, so Abraham has Isaac, has Jacob. Jacob has the 12 sons of Israel. Abraham makes his last uh, promises really to his children. He's giving these blessings to his children. Look at verse 8. Genesis 49, verse 8, Judah, one of his sons, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who who dares rouse him. The scepter, that's what a king has to rule with, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, do you hear the promise? God is going to reestablish his rule through a king. This king is going to be a human being descended from Eve, descended from Abraham, descended from Isaac, descended from Jacob, descended from which tribe? Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? He is going to come. And when he comes, people will bow down to him. The scepter, the kingship will never depart from Judah. This is going to be an everlasting kingdom. And is God going to rebuild what was lost through the tribe of Judah? Yes, he is. This is, by the way, this is what Jesus, I think, in part is saying to the woman at the well, when he says salvation is of the Jews. Jew means descendant of Judah. Salvation's of the Jews. This is where the lion of the tribe of Judah is coming from. Now, don't turn here right now. It's going to take too long. Do you remember the strange story of Balaam and Balak in the book of Numbers? That strange guy, Balaam. Balaam is hired to curse Israel. Remember when they're out in the wilderness? And when Balaam gets hired, he's fully intending to curse Israel. But as he goes to speak, the Holy Spirit overpowers them and words of blessing keep coming out of his mouth. Don't you hate it when that happens? You go to curse the people of God and blessing comes out. And so he stands up over and looks at the tent of millions of Israelites out in the wilderness in their tents. And he goes to curse them. He's getting paid to curse them. And he starts saying these strange things like this. A star shall come out of Jacob. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the head of Moab. Does this sound like a serpent crusher who is a king who's coming out of Jacob like a star rising? And then he says, he crouched down. He lie down like a lion. Sound like the lion of Judah. Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. Now here's, follow me here. This is getting complicated. The promise to Abraham 
I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, is now being explicitly connected to a king from the line of Judah. Are you hearing this? So the promise to rebuild the kingdom and crush Satan is now, we're getting a clue, it's going to come through a man, a king descended from Judah. That's what we're hearing ahead of time. This is all in the first five books of the Bible. Already, you, you, you get that information, which is amazing. The serpent crusher will bring the blessing promised to Abraham, and he will be a king descended from Judah, a star of Jacob. Now, we're not at Christmas time yet, although I kind of wish it was always Christmas time. The opposite of Narnia, right? <laughs> always winter, never Christmas. So I want always Christmas. We love Christmas time. And what happens? The Magi, they look out and they see the star. And they come and they say, we know the king of the Jews has been born because we saw his star. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall come from Israel. This is the promised one. And the king now has come on earth as in heaven. The king is now on earth, right? The king has shown up. That's the promised kingdom. Point number four, the partial kingdom. The partial kingdom. Now, just to, just to spare you time, this is the rest of the Old Testament historical books. <laughs> just a, a lot of stuff going on here. This is the rest of Old Testament history. That's what's going on. Just to th- throw, throw in a little something here, if I'm getting the numbers right. First 17 books of your Old Testament are history in basic chronological order. Then you have five books of poetry, and then you have 17 books of prophecy. I think I'm getting that right. So 17, 5, 17, we're covering those first 17 books of history right now. And the whole, what's going on here is God is beginning to build his kingdom. Now, just follow me on this. From Genesis 12, the call of Abraham, all the way to the middle of Exodus, there is one primary plot point, which is God building his people. Remember, it's all about having kids. Abraham can't have a child. He has a child. Isaac and Rebecca can't have kids. And they finally, after 20 years, they have the twins. And then Jacob has a bunch of children. And then those children multiply and they're in Egypt. And how does Exodus begin? Remember this verse? They, the Israel was fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied. The land was filled with them. God is multiplying the people for the kingdom, right? He needs a lot of people. So the people are multiplying. And that's Genesis 12 to Exodus 18. The people multiply. Let me also Stop here. The first 18 chapters of Exodus also gives us the pattern of how God saves his people. It's the Old Testament foreshadowing of how redemption works. How does salvation work? People, how about this? God's people are in bondage to the kingdom of Satan. They're in bondage to the Pharaoh kingdom. They're in slavery to their sin. Sound like Israel in Egypt? They're in slavery to the dark kingdom of evil. God sends a spotless lamb who is killed without a bone being broken. The blood is put on the doorposts of the home so that the oldest son is passed over from God's just judgment when it comes on the night of Passover. The people get up and they pass through the waters. They are now a renewed nation. They are now a new kingdom. They are God's people set apart from their previous kingdom. Does that remind you of Colossians 1? God has taken you from the kingdom of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. And we pass through the waters at our conversion when we are baptized and we are led into the wilderness time, which is our life now. Good news, isn't it? We're in the wilderness right now. And we are headed towards something way better than life right now. So much better. The promised land is coming. The new Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth. We're on our way there. But right now we are at life in the middle where we depend on God for our daily manna, our daily bread, right? We depend on God for our daily physical needs in the here and And now, so, Exodus 19, they get to Sinai. You know what it's going to be now? It's God's rule and blessing. His law shows up. And Exodus 19, all the way through the next book of Leviticus, is God's law. 
If you read it, I mean, I know many Bible through the year plans have died a hard death in these chapters, okay? You get there, you go, wow, I, whew, 10 chapters on tabernacle instructions is hard to get through. But, but God has a purpose. Why is that all there? Because God's blessing is also coming because God is going to dwell again with his people in the tabernacle. That's why it matters so much to God. How about place? We need a place for the kingdom. The book of Numbers Largely Deuteronomy prepares for the place, and then Joshua is all about conquest. It's taking the land. Those books are about getting the place of the kingdom. The promised land is to be taken. So now you've got God's people, Israel, in God's place, the promised land, under God's rule, the law of Moses, and they are experiencing God's blessing, His tabernacling presence in their midst that they have animal sacrifice in order to keep ceremonially clean. What about the rest of those historical books? Judges through at least Second Chronicles is focused on one thing, which is king. King is two things. It is how God rules through a human agent. He rules through a king. That's obvious. But it's also how the serpent crusher is going to show up. He's going to be a king who does battle with Satan. And I will just tell you, people were not expecting. If they would have read the Bible more carefully, they would have seen it. But I don't think I would have figured it out on my own, apart from... Jesus showing up and illuminating the Old Testament, if they would have paid careful attention, they would have seen that this king who was coming was unlike any king who had come before. This was a king who would begin his reign hanging on a Roman cross with Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, written over his head like a joke. You know, the earliest drawing we have that we've found of Jesus in history is in a Roman home from, I don't know, the second or so century. This is what it says. It's a, it's a mockery of Jesus, written by a non-Christian. It says, Alexa Minos worships his God. It has a picture of a human man on a cross with his hand stretched out with the head of a donkey on top. That's the first image, I think, that we have in history of the crucifixion. It's a mockery. No one is expecting God in the flesh as the king to be hanging on a cross. What kind of kingdom is this? What kind of king is going to be on a cross what are you talking about? The Roman gods strut to their throne. Jesus stumbled to his throne. What kind of God are we dealing with? We are dealing with a very different kingdom than the kingdoms of this world. That's why right before Jesus' death, he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would be fighting to not have me handed over to you. But he says, my kingdom is not from this world system. Now his kingdom is for this world. His kingdom is going to transform this world. His kingdom is going to rule over planet earth. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. If you're wondering, did Handel make that up in the Messiah? No, he got that from Revelation. Okay, that's not from Handel's Messiah. That is from the book of Revelation first. And that's where God's going to take over all of planet earth. And the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea, which sounds like totally to me. The glory of the Lord will be everywhere that you look. So Judges through Second Chronicles is all about a king. What's the theme of Judges? The last verse is the theme. In these days, there was no king in Israel. Therefore, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The reason Judges is a horror story after a horror story of violent and gruesome and awful deaths that get more violent as you go is saying, this is life without King Jesus present. This is what happens. We need the king. First Samuel's about Saul, the first failed king. Second Samuel largely focusing on David's kingship. And David looks like he might be a kind of serpent crusher, doesn't he? 
He's crushing Goliath's head. He's out there leading the battle. He is a faithful man after God's own heart. God looks at the inward appearance. David is, is the one. And then David commits adultery and murder and falls. His family into chaos. His children begin to treat each other horrifically. What's going on? David is not the Messiah that we're looking for. Solomon, maybe he will be the anointed one that we need. And Solomon marries hundreds of wives, hundreds of concubines. His heart is led into idol worship and the kingdom splits after he dies. And there's civil war. You have the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, and virtually most of the kings are bad. All the northern kings are bad. Most of the southern kings are bad. Is it looking good right now? No. So we are now in the partial kingdom as we're we're, uh, wrapping up this point. God's kingdom came in part and his will was done in part on earth as in heaven, but then it fell apart. It unraveled. And there was exile, judgment, God's people. Listen, when you get to the end of the historical books, does it look very hopeful? I mean, from a human perspective, Israel barely looks like the people of Yahweh. They're not in God's place. They're in Assyria and Babylon. They're, they're not under God's rule in the sense that they're disobedient everywhere they look, and they're experiencing the curses of the judgment, of the breaking of the covenant. They're not under the blessing that was promised. So what about those last 17 Old Testament books, the prophets? Remember, virtually all the prophets have the same kind of idea, sin of Israel, judgment of Israel, but hope for the future. Sin has happened. Judgment is now, but there is hope coming on the horizon. Turn to Isaiah 52 in your Old Testament, Isaiah 52. Now, most of us are familiar with Isaiah 53 in the suffering servant, but I want to start before we normally start this passage to connect this idea of the exile and the disrepair of Israel with the coming of Jesus. So let's start in verse 4 of Isaiah 52. This is dealing with Israel in the midst of really a terrible situation. So Isaiah 52, verse 4. This is at the end of Babylonian exile. looks hopeless. Isaiah 52, verse 4. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrians oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord? Seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord. And continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the the return of the Lord to Zion. He's going to come back and rebuild his kingdom. Verse 9, break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people, and he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, in other words, from Babylon. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste and you shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. How is this going to happen? How is God going to restore his people? Verse 13 is the unexpected turn in the story. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. 
Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. And then you know the words. Look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed, all we." Like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How is God going to rebuild his kingdom? A man disfigured beyond human resemblance is going to restore God's people. That sounds like madness. How does that work? Why are we alienated from God? Church, why, why are we alienated from God? Because of our sin. Until our sin is dealt with, both in a legal sense and in an actual experiential sense. In other words, until our sins are canceled and our actual hearts are turned to love God more than our sins, until that happens, there is no hope for you. There's no hope for me. Until that turn happens, there is no hope. We will be eternally in exile. In fact, one way to think of hell is eternal exile. It's being sent out away from God's presence into the outer darkness like the scapegoat, far, far away from the blessing of God's nearness and under God's eternal conscious wrath. That's what we all deserve. And so how does God solve the problem of exile and the absolutely dismantled kingdom? He sends the king to stand in the place of his rebellious subjects. His king takes an agonizing death on the cross. I mean, right now, Jesus still has the scars on his wrists, on his side, and on his feet. Right now, in this moment, the scars of the nails are still visible in heaven. And one day, you get to meet Jesus. And you personally are going to get to hear the words that I think Doubting Thomas heard, which is, come and touch my hands and see. Here's my side. Reach out your hand and touch. I believe that we will physically, with resurrected bodies, be able... There might be a long line in front of us, but I think we will be able to stand before Jesus and reach out with our own hands and to touch the scars on his wrists, on his side, and on his feet because of what he did for us. Can you imagine getting to see the marks on his body with your own eyes? That's going to happen. Real life. You're going to see the visible marks of what your sin and his love did when they combined together on the cross. And you're going to get to reach out and touch it. And I don't think those scars are ever going to heal away. I don't want them to ever go away. I want to see them for the rest of eternity because God's king is a king who dies in the place of rebellious subjects. Let's move to the New Testament. This is the next slide here, the New Testament. We have in the New Testament... God keeping all of his promises, the present kingdom. Point number six, the present kingdom. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. God's true people is found in Jesus. His true place is Jesus, the true temple. Under God's rule, Jesus is the true king, and we experience blessing in Jesus, the one who took our curse and gave us the blessing. Turn turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, the very first chapter of our gospel that we're going through. Matthew chapter 1. Let's test. Is what I'm saying biblical in the, in the structure? Let's see how Matthew begins his gospel. Scott preached on this a number of months ago around Christmas. Look at the first verse of the New Testament. 
the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he traces the descendancy from Abraham through David, through the deportation to Babylon in verse 12 to the Christ. Look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Do you see what Matthew's doing? We're, we're promised a descendant of Abraham is going to save the world and crush Satan. We trace the line through Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Jesse, David, Solomon, even Rehoboam. It goes all the way down through to Joseph, who is no king at the time because there's no kingdom at the time. He's just a carpenter. He should be king, but he's a carpenter. And what happens? His virgin betrothed Mary conceives, and now Jesus is going to come and restore them after the deportation to Babylon. This is how the kingdom will be restored. Do we see the Exodus pattern? The lamb slain without spot or wrinkle to bring us in so that God's wrath could pass over. Point number seven, you have the proclaimed kingdom. Now, this is where you are living. This is where we are. The proclaimed kingdom. This is from Acts to the book of Jude. This is all the New Testament letters plus Acts. It starts at Pentecost. This is the time in which we are living right now. This is major life application. We are called in this time to speak of the kingdom. We aren't called to, quote, build the kingdom. God's the one that builds the kingdom through his word. But we are called to spread his word so that God's word can do the work. And God's word can convert people and bring them under the reign of King Jesus willingly, gladly, joyfully, so that they can be forgiven and saved. And right now we're in this strange tension between the already, the kingdom has already come, the king has already come, and the not yet. But the kingdom hasn't fully come. The kingdom has come, but the king has come, but the king is coming again. We're in between. That means that as Christians, we are holy and righteous in Christ. We have a transformed new nature, and yet we still struggle with indwelling sin. The new man and the old man at war within us as we fight and strive for the Christian life. Now God's people are those who are united to Christ, the true Israel. We are headed towards God's place, which is the new Jerusalem, the new creation. We are under His rule, His word, His spirit. And we are under his blessing because of what Jesus has done. Last point, number eight, the perfected kingdom. The perfected kingdom. This is really the book of Revelation, especially the end. The day is coming when all that was lost in Eden will be restored, but with more. You say, how could it get better than Eden? There was a book a while back, even better than Eden. That's a great title because what, what, what is it saying? How can it get better than Eden? Well, how about this? In Eden, was there still the possibility of sin? Yes. Was there still the possibility of a serpent slithering in and whispering temptation into your ear? Yes. Is that going to happen in the New Jerusalem? No. All that is evil is cast out. There is nothing that causes defilement within. Only what is in is clean and virtuous and pure. May the righteous still be righteous. Right? May, they, may, may those, who are, those who are godly continue to be godly. That is how the Bible comes to an end with something even better than the Garden of Eden. So the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place, under God's rule, and experiencing His blessing. And if we know Jesus, if we are united to Christ, we are the true offspring of Abraham. We are part of that covenant blessing. We are God's people headed to God's place. We are under God's rule, and we are one day, we are now blessed, but we are headed towards eternal blessedness in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I'm going to close with this text. Listen to this from Ephesians 1. In Christ, we have redemption. That's Exodus language. In Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. What was God's purpose set forth in Christ, the Messiah? As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth. Does it sound like the disunity between God's space and our space is going to be reconciled in, in Christ himself? Now heaven and earth will dwell together in the new creation. God's space and our space will be the same space for all of eternity. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, the church even now is like an embassy of heaven. It's not the country itself, but it is an outpost of that new Jerusalem that is coming. And so we, like an embassy, represent heaven on earth. That's why we're called to be citizens of heaven. Act like your citizenship truly is there because it is. And we await a Savior who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body with the power with which He subjects all things to His own will. And so, God, I do pray that we as North Avenue Church could be, to whatever degree it is possible, that we would be a holy people that would reflect the character of heaven here on earth. God, we pray that even right now in this church that your kingdom would come and your will would be done right here at North Avenue Church as it is in heaven. That we would be citizens of the kingdom and act like it. That people would be around us and wonder, you must be from another world. Your citizenship is not really from here. Whatever else we share in common with unbelievers, we don't share the most important thing, which is the fact that we are to live as citizens worthy of the kingdom of God. And God, we do pray that in the end, at the right time, that your kingdom would come in fullness and that your will would be done in fullness, that your name would be hallowed, set apart, loved, valued, delighted in like it should be, that your name would be hallowed, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done perfectly and fully and forever here in the new earth as it is right now in heaven, that all things in heaven and on earth would be united in Christ and that that would be visibly seen by all in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.